At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul is describing for us true Christian love, this indispensable grace of the Holy Spirit that apart from which we have nothing of salvation, nothing of any eternal value. Whatever gifts we may have, if we don't have this grace of true Christian love, we are nothing. We possess nothing. And as he's describing this love, we see in verse 6 that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. We also see in verse 7 that this love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures 
all things. Now you'll notice as we continue our what was an evening sermon series this morning, uh, we see that there's a transition that takes place in the thought of the apostle here. He's opened the chapter in the first three verses by speaking of the indispensability of Christian love, that it's absolutely necessary as a mark of true saving grace. Without it, we have no credible profession of faith at all. We have nothing. We're without God, without Christ, without hope in the world. But then he begins to describe what this true Christian love is. And in verses 4 and 5, you can see the emphasis is on the fruit of Christian love. When we think of Christian love, of course, we're thinking of the love that God requires in His law, the first table of which is to love God supremely, and the second table of which describes our duties of love, love toward others, which flow as a fruit of our love for God. Well, in verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul describes this horizontal fruit of the vertical root of our love for God. He shows the horizontal fruit of our love for others, which flows from the vertical root and foundation, which is our supreme love for God. We could say, in other words, that in verses 4 and 5, he's dealing primarily with Christian love as it relates to the second table of the law in our relationship to others. And that then, as we move to verses 6 and 7, he begins to describe the root to this fruit, the the vertical to this horizontal, the first table which undergirds and grounds the second table. Because in verse 6, he's speaking of these categories of truth and righteousness which go far beyond our everyday relationships, right? You look at verses 4 and 5 and it's dealing with suffering offenses from other people and being kind and not envying, so on and so forth. Then you get to verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. What's that? It's sin. What's that? It's the violation of God's commandments. So we're now dealing with something more general, broader, expansive, foundational. Not just how we show love in our relationships with other people as a fruit of this root of love for God, but now we're dealing with the fundamentals. Love does not rejoice in what God hates, but rejoices in the truth. What is the truth? Well, it's the truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God is the God of truth. It's what God has revealed. And so, we're beginning in verse 6 to look at these more foundational categories of how we relate to God. What has He commanded? And what has He revealed? His righteousness, His truth, and our response, either rejoicing or not rejoicing. And then you get to verse 7, which describes this comprehensive loyalty and commitment and trust that the believer has toward God. It's love for God that causes the believer to bear all things that God has called him to do. To bear those burdens, those responsibilities. Uh, It's love for God 
that causes the believer to say, I will bear all of those things that God uh, puts on my back. All of the things that God brings into my life and commands me to do. I will believe all the things that God has revealed to me in His Word. And out of love for God, I will hope in all the things that God has revealed about what He's going to do because He is infallibly and perfectly faithful in everything that He says He's going to do so I can put my hope and trust in all the things that He has promised. And I will endure all things for the sake of God. Now, it's very important that we don't misunderstand verse 7 and apply it to our relationships to other people because it is not true that we ought to bear every burden that somebody uh, asks us to bear. One of the most important words in the English language is no. People are going to ask you to do things and put burdens on your back that God has not called you to bear, and you need to be able to say, no, I can, I can do this, but no, I can't do that. You don't want to bear all things that everybody asks you to do. Uh, you don't want to believe all things that everybody tells you. Proverbs 14.15 says only the fool believes every word. People massage, and I believe, even though some of the best commentators out there, they mean well, but they're distorting this text. It doesn't say, give people the benefit of the doubt. It says, believe all things. Well, that's only true. And that can only be true with respect to God. Of course, love thinks no evil. We've already dealt with giving people the benefit of the doubt. That's already water under the bridge. We've already learned that. But love does not believe all things that other people tell you. If you do that, you're going to have a miserable existence. Love does not hope all things. Uh, If love hopes all things and believes all things that anybody ever told you, um, you're going to struggle in the world of politics because there are a lot of people making a lot of promises and they frankly, just don't come true. You can hope in God and not be disappointed. You don't want to put all your hope in all the things that other people promise. So on and so forth. So, if we don't understand this as directly speaking of our love for God, it really is an overstatement that causes all kinds of confusion in the Christian life. Verse 7 is with respect to our love and our commitment toward God. And it would also be redundant, by the way, to say that love bears all things. And some people say, well, that means we bear with offenses from others. Yes, but the apostle already addressed that in verse 4, that love suffers long and is kind. He already dealt with that in verse 5, that love is not easily provoked. So you see, if you take verse 7 in relation to other people, it ends up not only overstating the case, in a way that's contrary to other biblical passages, but it also becomes highly redundant because Paul's just going over the same things over and over again. No, he's given us the horizontal fruit and now he's transitioning to the vertical, the root, the first table of the law that founds and grounds the second table. Our love for God. And here in in these verses, verses 6 and 7, we see this doctrine coming forth that true Christian love so delights in the truth of God's Word as to embrace all of its doctrines and duties, even the most difficult ones, with a willing spirit. True Christian love so delights in the truth of God's Word. You see that there? Verse 6, 
rejoices in the truth. True Christian love so delights in the truth of God's Word as to embrace all of its doctrines and duties, even the most difficult ones, with a willing spirit. Now, what do we mean the truth of God's Word? Well, love does not rejoice in iniquity, that which contradicts the Word of God, but love rejoices in the truth, that which God's Word reveals. Truth is set in contrast to iniquity or unrighteousness. We saw that last Sabbath evening. And so what you have here is the the emphasis on love rejoicing in the opposite of iniquity. In other words, the righteousness that is revealed in God's Word. The truth, not only of biblical doctrine, but of biblical commandments. And you see, when we see the word truth, we immediately think of doctrine. Jesus says, John 17, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. And we think, well, we learn biblical doctrines, and these biblical doctrines inform our lives, and, and we're sanctified in it. And that's true. 1 Timothy 2.4, we're told that God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we think, well, the knowledge of the truth, truth refers to biblical doctrine. And again, that is absolutely correct. However, as we saw last time, the Apostle Paul connects truth and righteousness in an inseparable way, that the doctrines of the Bible and the duties which ought to be produced by the knowledge of those doctrines are connected. And so here he's saying love doesn't rejoice in what is iniquitous and sinful, but it does rejoice in truth. Not just doctrines, but biblical righteousness, biblical faithfulness to biblical duties. And you can see this in the Old Testament, Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Your law is truth. So God's commandments, a biblical lifestyle, is part of truth. Righteousness can, can be understood as, as, in a sense, a footnote to truth. Ephesians 4.21, the apostles dealing with Faithfulness in the Christian life. Biblical righteousness in our relationships, in our attitudes and actions. He says, Ephesians 4.21, or verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. So he describes the sinfulness of the Gentiles, their unrighteousness, their iniquity. And he says, but you have not so learned Christ. So he's saying that your knowledge, your learning is integrally connected to your lifestyle. He says, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct. Right? Truth and righteousness are integrally connected. And uh, there's so many other places we could go for this. The doctrines and duties of the Bible which go hand in hand. You can see it in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Titus 2.11, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So what does the Bible teach us? It teaches us righteousness. The truth of God and the righteousness of God go hand in hand. So we're speaking here of the truth of God's Word, the doctrines and duties of the Bible. And we're told... uh, 
by the Apostle Paul here that true Christian love delights in the truth, rejoices in the truth. Remember, this is the true Christian love that apart from which you're headed for hell. You've got nothing. You don't have Christ as your Savior. You don't have God as your Father. You don't have the Holy Spirit as your Comforter. You have nothing. You are nothing. He would never speak that way of a Christian, right? That you have nothing. No, if you have Christ, you have everything. Even if you're backsliding, he would never say that you are nothing. If you're a child of God, even if you're backsliding, you're something. But he's saying if you don't have true Christian love, you're nothing. And he says true Christian love rejoices in the doctrines and duties of God's Word. It rejoices in the truth. It delights in the truth. And this is something that is especially emphasized throughout the book of Psalms. Just listen to some of these references. Psalm 1 verse 2. In contrast to the ungodly person who's headed for hell, it says uh, concerning the godly man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in God's truth. His delight is in God's holy law. Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. True Christian love delights in the biblical doctrines and biblical duties of the Word of God. And of course, Psalm 119 really hits it out of the park. Listen to these verses. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 20, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Love rejoices in the truth. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Verse 47, and I will delight myself in your commandments which I love. Love rejoices in the truth of God's Word. Verse 72 of the same psalm, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Can you say that with a clear conscience? That God's Word, even His commandments, are more valuable to you than a pot of gold. That's, that's the true Christian love that we're seeing described here in our passage. Uh, again, Psalm 119, verse 111, Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. Verse 162, I rejoice at Your Word as one who finds great treasure. If you ever been cleaning the house and you found an envelope with some money that you forgot you had, okay? God's Word. He rejoices at God's Word as one who finds great treasure. True Christian love delights in the truth of God's Word. Uh, again, we see this in Jeremiah 6, verse 10. 
the opposite among the, the unconverted. He says, because the word of the Lord is a reproach to them, they have no delight in it. But in contrast to that, the prophet Jeremiah, we're told, chapter 15, verse 16, your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Now, the word that God gave him to proclaim involved a lot of judgment. Here's the weeping prophet. This is the guy who said, you know, out of my eyes are flowing uh, a river of tears for the daughter of God's people. And yet, he says, your word, I found it, I ate it. Your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 verse 22, which is a passage that actually illustrates, as we'll see, God willing, the low point in the Christian life where we know what we should do and we don't do it and we know the things we should avoid but we find ourselves falling into those sins and, and the Apostle Paul is filled with grief at his own remaining sin but even in the midst of his lowest point, if you could say that, as a Christian, he says, verse 22, I delight in the law of God in the inner man. This is the lowest common denominator. This is... This is the basement. This is as far down as you can go. And he's saying he still, even in his backsliding, he delights in the law of God in the inner man. And so we need to be careful when we encounter these types of verses in the Bible and we think, well, I know somebody who loves the Word of God like that. Maybe they should become a pastor or an elder or a missionary. No, my friends. This is describing a Christian. This is describing someone who is born again. This is describing a new creature in Christ Jesus who not only has imbibed and received doctrines into his mind, but he has received truth into his heart and his desires and priorities and values have changed. He was dead in trespasses and sins. Now he is alive unto righteousness and he loves God and rejoices in the truth of God's Word. Loves it. It's sweet. It's valuable. It's everything. He delights in the law of God in the inner man. Even when he's struggling in sin, he delights in the law of God because it's the law of God that restores him from backsliding. Just because somebody loves God's Word and eats it, and like Job finds it more necessary than his daily food, that does not mean somebody is called to the ministry. That means somebody's saved. And one of the dangers we see in the church today is a dumbing down of the marks of grace and salvation. To think that, well, most people are going to be nominal and most people are going to keep the Bible on the shelf except every once in a while. And, and if you are really interested in the Bible, then you might be called to the ministry. No, my friends. That is nominalism and that leads many people to hell. That type of message. Uh, true Christian love rejoices in the truth, loves the truth. Yes, our love can grow cold, and we need perhaps sermons like this to rekindle it and convict us, but if we have a perpetual uh, disregard for the Word of God, then we, we lack an essential mark of grace and salvation. True Christian love delights in the truth 
of God's Word. And it so delights in the truth of God's Word as to embrace all of its doctrines and duties, even the most difficult ones. In Exodus 24, verse 3, we're told that all the people of Israel made a confession and declared their commitment to the Lord through this covenantal sort of ceremony. All that the Lord says we will do. All that the Lord says we will do. We have a covenant of communicant membership that we will endeavor to forsake all sin. That we will diligently read the Bible and engage in private prayer and so on and so forth. True Christian love so delights in God's truth as to embrace all of its doctrines and duties, even the most difficult ones. All that the Lord God has said we will do. It's not a sort of perfectionism that I think I'm going to actually be without sin, but it's I'm going to strive against all sin and I'm going to have regard to all of God's precepts, the whole counsel of God. Uh, As John says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you will not sin. Right? The true Christian's aim and goal in life is to not sin. If there's a choice to be made, they're seeking to make the right choice every single time. Even when they fail, that's their desire. And and again, when, when they fall into premeditated sin, they repent and they get back on the wagon, if you will. But it's all of the doctrines and duties of the Bible. It's the whole counsel of God. It's not buffet style. It's not take your pick. It's not, well, Herod... He says, I'll do many things in response to the preaching of John the Baptist. I'll do many things, but I won't give up Herodias, my brother's wife. You see, that's not true saving faith. He didn't so delight in the truth of God's Word at the mouth of John the Baptist so as to do all that God's Word told him to do. He picked and chose. And that's not biblical. That's not true Christian love. Uh, Love, we're told, bears all things. And the word bear here brings to mind the idea of strenuous biblical duties aggravated by challenging circumstances. So it's not just the yoke and the burden of the Christian life, which of course by God's grace, we don't find it burdensome. That yoke is easy, that burden is light in comparison to what Christ did for us, bearing our sins. Uh, But we're thinking of these strenuous biblical duties. And the Christian life involves work, it involves labor, it involves bearing our own load and bearing uh, the burdens of others and so fulfilling the law of Christ. It's hard, it's strenuous, and this word conveys the idea of not only those biblical duties, but being aggravated in those biblical duties by challenging circumstances. And you can see earlier in this epistle, the apostle uses this type of language in a similar way. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, he's describing uh, the fact that he had a, a right to demand to be paid for his preaching ministry, but he didn't use that right because under these difficult circumstances among the Corinthians and, and in his uh, apostolic ministry, he, he needed to deny himself that and work Uh, a job on his own as a tent maker and and so on and so forth. But he was denied that provision in these circumstances. It was difficult circumstances that he was in. And verse 12 of chapter 9, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things. Same word for bear here. 
but bear all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul's duty to proclaim the gospel now involves these aggravating circumstances among the Corinthians that compel him out of love for Christ to work and provide for himself. He bears all things and the love of Christ constrains him. True Christian love does not pick and choose which biblical duties it will bear and which circumstances it will tolerate in performing biblical duties. Whatever environment, whatever situation, whatever circumstances the Lord places the Christian in, he or she, out of love for God, will persevere in the most difficult circumstances. Not running away, but bearing all things and trusting that God will not load them with more than they can bear. True Christian love believes all things. All the truth of God's Word, even the hard sayings, even the difficult doctrines. The Bible is clear that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It's not pick and choose. It's every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, If you were to look up the definition of saving faith in our confession of faith, you would see that similar language is used, that Uh, True saving faith believes all that is revealed in the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Uh, Well, let let me use this verse. It's not the one I was thinking of. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Nothing causes them to stumble. I think the King James says... um, Nothing offends them. Nothing offends them. For the true Christian, even when they encounter things in the Bible, doctrines and duties that seem inconvenient, that at first glance seem offensive and off-putting, things that uh, may involve painful truths and difficult responsibilities, things that are humbling and convicting, things that the flesh wants nothing to do with, The fact of the matter is true Christian love believes those things anyway. There are many things in the Word of God that cut against our culture. And so there are things that may tempt you as a professing Christian to say, well, I'm going to believe these core doctrines, but then this other doctrine, the doctrine, for instance, of male headship in the home, wives submitting to their husbands. Well, uh, I, I'm going to keep that one at arm's length. I don't rejoice over that one. Or love your enemies. Love your enemies. You have a duty to love and pray for and bless your opponents. People that hate you. People that slander you. The, these kinds of people who uh, stir up your fleshly ire and anger. You have a duty to love them. Keeping the Sabbath. There are people that have very important things that they're doing on the Sabbath day in terms of sports, in terms of uh, various uh, uh, things that they may be involved in that are central to their lifestyle. Uh, They may work on Sunday and their job requires them to do that and it's not a work of necessity or mercy. And the principle of Sabbath keeping cuts against them. Maybe they love watching NFL football, something like that. It cuts against them. And it's inconvenient and they don't want to think about what their life would be like if they had to deal with that aspect 
of the truth of God's Word. Maybe it's the Gospel when it condemns the doctrine of justification by works. And if you follow it out, there's an anathema upon the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church and people who believe that false Gospel and who remain in a false communion. Uh, May God have mercy on their souls, but they're headed for hell. And perhaps you have relatives that lived and died in that heresy. And the Word of God confronts you with that, and it's hard to take. It's, it's, it's a struggle. Okay? But true Christian love manifests itself in these times and situations by believing those things anyway because you love God, because you love His truth. You rejoice in the truth. You don't rejoice uh, perhaps in certain implications of that truth in your life and in your Uh, emotions and and feelings, but you rejoice in the truth. You embrace the truth. We could go on. True Christian love hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, I wish we had time to look at those, but you see the same pattern. You get the point. All of the doctrines and duties of the Bible are prized and loved, believed and accepted. Love rejoices in the truth. And it embraces these things with a willing spirit. So you think of Abraham. God comes to him in Genesis 22 and reveals this command for Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Abraham gets up early the next morning, willingly receives this revelation of God's commandment and gets to the work early in the morning. Not to say there was not uh, some mixed emotions, but his faith triumphed over his feelings. His Christian love triumphed. He got up early in the morning. He received it with a willing spirit. Uh, God came to Moses in Deuteronomy 1 and said, you're not entering the promised land. Now you need to go train up Joshua and encourage him to lead God's people into the promised land. And we know from Deuteronomy that that was a tough pill to swallow. God at some point had to say, Moses, stop asking me about this. You're not going in. And you need to train up this other man to do what you desire to do. Difficult? Yes. But he did it. He willingly received what God revealed to him. 1 Samuel 3.18, we're told that the house of Eli, the priest, which was judged because of his unfaithfulness, because of the wickedness of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, And God revealed through the boy Samuel that Eli's house would be judged, cut off, and his sons would be killed. And Eli said, let the Lord do what seems good to him. He received that truth from God willingly. He so rejoiced in the truth of God that even the unpalatable, difficult revelation from God, he was able to receive it willingly. We know that God chastened David in countless ways, but He says, Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. He received the rod of God's chastening willingly. We see in Ezekiel 24 that God revealed to Ezekiel one of the ways you're going to uh, be a a sign and a wonder to your generation is that I'm going to cause your wife to die and you're not going to mourn for her for, for such and such a period of time. And this is all going to point to what I'm doing in the midst of the nation. And Ezekiel willingly received that command and he fulfilled it. Think about that. Think about how difficult that would have been. Uh, You know, he's thinking, boy, I didn't know I signed up for this. Or Jeremiah, when God said, you're not going to get married at all. 
Think about the self-denial there. Yet he received it with a willing spirit. Think of the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 when first when she comes to have her daughter healed by Jesus, Jesus doesn't even listen to her, walks away from her, and eventually when he speaks to her, he says that the bread is for the children. He's come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The bread is for the Jews, for the children. And, and uh, not the dogs underneath the table. And she says, well, the, 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 the dogs underneath the table would like a crumb as well. She humbles herself. Even that revelation from Christ, his words could be interpreted as offensive in some sense. She's not offended. As Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Why? Because she trusted him. She loved him. She was able to humble herself and receive God's truth from his lips regardless of her own feelings and desires. She uh, ultimately came to rejoice in that truth when her daughter was healed. Now there are objections to this. We've said that true Christian love so delights in the truth of God's Word as to embrace all of its doctrines and duties, even the most difficult ones, with a willing spirit. And some would object here at what we've said. They would say it's contrary to sound reason to expect that every Christian would delight in God's truth. Uh, This is charismatic emotionalism to say that a mark of grace involves spiritual emotions and affections of the heart. That this is revivalistic irrationalism. That you have the stony ground in the parable of the sower and it receives the word with joy and then withers away. And isn't that what we can expect from any emphasis on spiritual affections or emotions? But my friends, it's unmistakable in our text. True Christian love rejoices in the truth. Joy is not entirely exclusively an emotion, but it involves emotion. If you have the idea of joy and there's no emotion, there's no moving of your heart and affections, I'm not sure what what dictionary you're using or what life you're living. Because when something joyful happens and you experience that joy, you are moved. And I'll tell you something that's irrational. What's irrational And I would dare say that those, if there's anyone here who doesn't even believe the Christian faith, but you're here, uh, I think you, you could agree with this, perhaps even from your own perspective outside the camp of Christianity, that what's truly irrational is for a person to claim that they deserve eternal destruction in hell and to claim that God has saved them from that sure destination in hell by sending His only begotten Son into the world. Indeed, Emmanuel, God in human flesh, died on the cross of Calvary, endured hell's suffering and torment on the cross, and rose again, and has given you a kingdom of everlasting glory and joy in the presence of God. And to claim all of that without an ounce of emotion, what a joke. That's irrational. Imagine getting a phone call that someone that you love has died. You're not going to have an emotional response to that. Imagine that you think you've been just diagnosed with terminal cancer and you get a phone call from the doctor and he says, uh, we've taken another test result and you don't have any cancer. You don't think there are going to be tears of joy? You don't think there's going to be any emotion? Oftentimes, the people that raise these kinds of objections 
they've got all kinds of emotion. Just watch them when they're angry. So there's emotion, but why not emotion in the things of God? Why do we get hot and heavy and, and get you know excited about all these other things, but we're lukewarm in the things of God? If there's no emotion in your Christianity, are you really a Christian? Do you really believe that you've been saved from hell by God Himself dying on the cross for your sins? Second objection. This is contrary to the contemporary norm. They would say few professing Christians love God's Word in the way that you're describing, and therefore, uh, this is extremism. Well, is it possible that we live in such a wicked and perverse and backslidden nominalistic generation that what is the norm for us is not the norm for the biblical Christian. Is that possible? Because in Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, and by implication, most of the professing covenant members of His day, and He quotes this verse from Isaiah. This is Matthew 15, verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, the New King James isn't super helpful here. Verse 8 should begin, this people, this people, this nation draws near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus is saying the whole nation is characterized by this dead, lifeless, heartless religion that is leading them to hell. Uh, Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that few find the narrow way at any given time in history. It's often the case. Few find it. Thirdly, some would say that it's contrary to Christ's own example of self-denial. Didn't He say, not my will, but your will be done in Luke 22:42? Yes, but you go to Psalm 46 through 8, and He says, I delight to do your will and to be the sacrifice for sins. You go to Hebrews 12.2 and it's very clear that it's for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross. And you go to Psalm 16 which we sang earlier in the service and it's abundantly clear that His glory rejoiced, His flesh rested at ease because of the presence of God with Him as He looked ahead to the cross and to the resurrection. So yes, Christ denied Himself. Yes, it was unpleasant to think about the, the pain and suffering of the cross but his love for God triumphed over it and he willingly did it. He delighted to do God's will, submitting himself to God's will and finding joy in it. Some people would say that it's contrary to Romans 7 and the experience of the Christian there where, as I already mentioned, uh, what we want to do, we don't do. What we know we shouldn't do, we, we end up doing. But as I already mentioned, it's extremely clear there that even at that point, Paul delighted in the law of God in the inner man, and he was filled with emotion. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. He was filled with a not rejoicing in iniquity, and therefore he was filled with a rejoicing in the truth, and it's that true spark of the work of the Spirit that revived him into chapter 8 where he conquered his sin. So many more objections could be raised, but let's just move quickly to our application. First, to the unconverted. 
to those who examine themselves and can honestly say they do not rejoice in the truth. There's nothing. They're not committed to it. They don't have any inclination or love for the Word of God. Uh, They have no desire to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things according to all the doctrines and duties of the Word of God. Is that you? Uh, Let me just uh, read something here from Jonathan Edwards just to reinforce this point in his book, The Religious Affections. He says, quote, I am bold to assert that there never was any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any person by anything of a religious nature that he ever read, heard, or saw that had not his affections moved. Never was a natural man engaged earnestly to seek his salvation. Never were any such brought to cry after wisdom and lift up their voice for understanding and to wrestle with God in prayer for mercy And never was one humbled and brought to the foot of God from anything that he ever heard or imagined of his own unworthiness and deservings of God's displeasure, nor was ever one induced to fly for refuge unto Christ while his heart remained unaffected. Nor was there ever a saint awakened out of a cold, lifeless frame or recovered from a declining state in religion and brought back from a lamentable departure from God without having his heart affected. The Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affection, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, sorrow, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. Now, of course, it's all borne out. It's all produced by our knowledge of the truth, working upon our will, our desire for the truth, and it produces godly affections. But if we don't have these things, then we are not Christians. It doesn't say you have to have a certain measure, you have to be Jonathan Edwards, no. But there must be a joy in the truth. There must be a desire to receive all these things with a willing spirit. Without a rejoicing in the truth, you have nothing. And the the Word of God would exhort you even now from Ezekiel chapter 18 to come to grips with your dead heart, with your stony heart, to accept that you have that. And verse 31 of Ezekiel 18, cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. We tend to think of conversion as as, uh, centered around somebody saying, I'm guilty, Lord, save me, wash away my sins. That's part of it. But the other part is, Jesus needs to save you from your stony heart. And one of the ways that God humbles people and brings them to conversion is not only under a sight and sense of the guilt of their sin, but under a sight and sense of the deadness of their own heart. God causes people to see that. And that's what He said to these unconverted people. Get yourself a new heart. Now, you can't actually get yourself a new heart. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus Christ can save you from your evil heart. 
And one of the marks of someone who he is saving from their evil heart and whom he is replacing that heart with a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone is someone who cries out, save me from my evil heart. Who lays it before the Lord. Lord, save me. I don't rejoice in the truth. I I don't uh, hate iniquity. I need a new heart. Lord, save me from my evil heart. You can't demand that God save you from an evil heart. You can't give yourself a new heart, but by coming to the realization that only God can, you are moving in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are crying out to Him to save you from your sinfulness and not merely from the guilt of your sin. And my friends, that's a mark of true saving faith. Lord, save me from my sinful, stony heart. Secondly, and I know I've run out of time here, but briefly, to the backslider. To the backslider. The backslider in heart is filled with his own ways. Proverbs 14, 14. Proverbs 27, verse 7 says that if you fill yourself with food, that even sweet food will not taste good at all. You filled yourself with with your own ways, and the sweetness of the Word of God is no longer desirable to you. doesn't matter how great the spread is. If you're full, it doesn't, doesn't make an impact on your appetite. You just don't have room to consume more food. You're filled with your own ways, and so the Word of God may seem sweet or valuable in some sense, but the fact is you just don't have an appetite for it. So what do you need to do? You need to get rid of that stuff in your life that you've, that, that, that you've been consuming. Things in your lifestyle that have been consuming your time. Things in your life where you've been focused on things that are not of God and you're focused on them too much. Earthly things, earthly cares and concerns. Get those things out. Stop consuming those things and then you'll have an appetite for the things of God. It's like fasting. Maybe you need to fast from certain activities and pursuits in your life to create that void and vacuum for the Word of God to come in and be first and foremost to feed your soul. Because there is great blessedness when you consume the Word of God. When you delight in the Word of God. Read through Psalm 119. You're filled with great peace. You're filled with great delight. You're filled with great joy. Christ guards your heart and mind through His Word and by His Spirit. There is great blessedness when through the Word of God you keep yourself in the love of God. So return to the Word of God. Fast from your earthly pursuits and fill your soul with the bread of God's Holy Word. Thirdly, to the church in America. We complain that we're being marginalized and that there's soft persecution and we're being trampled underfoot. But my friends, is that really the situation? That we need to blame the world around us for the fact that we're being trampled underfoot in this country? Should we be sitting back complaining about how the the political leaders are against us and the culture and the media are against us Uh, Is that really the ultimate problem? No. Matthew 5.13 says that we're the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, how shall it be made salty again? 
it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Isn't that possibly what the Lord Jesus is conveying to us as His church in America? Without love, you are nothing. Indeed, in a sense, in a corporate sense, you're good for nothing. So you're going to be trampled underfoot by men. And I'm going to raise up your enemies against you to trample you in that way. Because without true love and affection for my word, if you don't take it seriously, if you pick and choose, if you don't delight in me and in my word, then what good are you? Be trampled by the woke multitudes. My friends, Jesus spews out of His mouth the lukewarm church in Laodicea. We're told in Matthew 24, verse 12, iniquity abounds, the love of many has grown cold. Is it possible that iniquity abounds because the love of the church has grown cold? Something to think about. But really, I think the last thing I want to say and then we'll be done is we need to delight in the Sabbath. We're told in Isaiah 58, 1 through 3, that Isaiah lifted up his voice like a trumpet and declared to Israel their sins. Verse 2 says, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, but it's clear it's disingenuous and it's insincere. He goes on to say that in the day of their fast, they find pleasure, they exploit their laborers, They're hypocritical and nominalistic in their religious service. But he goes on with these people who profess to delight in the Lord and he brings it home with respect to the Sabbath in verse 13. He's speaking of their need to be strengthened, their need to be restored, and the old waste places will be raised up and the foundations and all of these things repaired and restored. And he goes, verse 13, how's it going to happen? If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, stop trampling it underfoot, and maybe then the, the nation will stop trampling you underfoot. Turn away your foot from the Sabbath. Don't trample it underfoot. Take off your shoes. It's holy ground for spiritual activities. From doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of the Lord honorable, and and you shall honor Him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. See that? Delight in the Sabbath, delight in the Lord. Two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it's very clear. We want restoration. We want to stop being trampled underfoot by men. God says, be real in your delight in me by delighting in my Sabbath and using it to pursue spiritual gain for your life, for your marriage, for your family, for your nation. My friends, love rejoices in the truth and love delights in the Sabbath. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are delightful. Open our eyes that we may see Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that we may see the wondrous things of Your law, 
We pray, O Lord, that we would so open up our Bibles this day and feed ourselves with Your Word that You, by Your Spirit, would cause us, as it were, to be addicted to the reading and meditating upon Your Word, that we would get a taste of it and that we would never have enough and that we would love its doctrines and duties, that we would devote ourselves to them and receive them with a willing spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.